Well, beloved, we are in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, we'll be looking at verses 12 and 13 this morning. If you're not already there in your Bibles, I would invite you to turn there now. If you don't have a Bible, as I always say, there is likely a blue Bible located underneath the seat around you. And in that Bible, you can turn to page 980, and you will arrive at the right place. Have you read through Philippians this last week by a show of hands? Let me see. You've read through Philippians this last week? Okay. I'm going to keep encouraging you. Have you memorized any part of the letter yet? Yes? I got one. Two? Destiny? Yeah? Was your husband holding up your hand? That's either way. I like it. Okay, fantastic. All right. Let me encourage you to that. Memorize a portion of the letter. I'm not going to make you, I mentioned last time, I might ask, I, well, I'm not going to make anybody get up here and recite it, but uh, if you wanted to, that would be really neat. That would be really neat, a portion of the letter. But either way, memorize, begin to memorize portions of the letter. And if you haven't read through Philippians, at least once, read through it, okay? And then try to make it maybe a habit of yours. We'll be in the letter at least for another five or six years, so... <laughs> You should really get to know it well by then, I think. Maybe you could memorize the whole thing. Turn to someone next to you, or behind you if there's no one sitting next to you. <laughs> Look them in the eyes, smile, and kindly say, work it out. All right. <laughs> Work it out. Paul says something like that to the church in Philippi, which is uh, also the title of today's message. Let's take a closer look at exactly what he meant. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12, the Word of God reads this way, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's the uh, ESV translation. That's the Bible that we use here every week. It's a good translation. I wanted to provide you another translation that I thought was more helpful, at least I think so, in understanding what Paul is communicating here in these verses. It's the NET translation, so let me read that to you. I will refer back to it a number of times as we're making our way through the individual verses. Beginning in verse 12, the NET reads this way. So then, my dear friends... Just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, continue working out your salvation. And that, I'll pause just for a moment, and I might say this again, but it's okay. Continue working. Work there, as is translated in the ESV, is in the present tense. This is a better way to translate it. I think it is more helpful even as we begin to look at it. Continue working. This is a, a work that you are to do and never stop doing. 
Continue working out your salvation with awe and reverence. For the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. That's probably my favorite translation of that particular passage. Now, let's get into it. The therefore, as it is in the ESV, or the so then, as it is in the NET, at the beginning of verse 12, link this part of the letter, verses 12 and 13, and actually all the way down to 18, but we're just covering 12 and 13 today. That therefore, so then, link this part of the letter to all that Paul has already communicated, and we have covered, in chapter 1, verse 27, all the way through chapter 2, verse 11. In other words, these verses that I just read are part of a larger section of the letter. They're not isolated. They're not to be treated as if they're one single thought all by themselves. They are not. They are part of a larger part of the letter. And that larger part or that larger section of the letter that these verses are a part of begin with an authoritative command from Paul in verse 27, where the section begins. I've mentioned this to you before. I also said I would continue to mention it to you because it's important to keep coming back to that and keep everything in its context. The command in 127 stands as the heading for the entire section. That's how you can think about it. It's the heading of the chapter. So if I had a paper, it's the heading for all that's in the paper. It's the title, if you will. It stands over it. And that command is, are you looking at it? Are your eyes at 127? That command is, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Would you say it with me? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That command is not just for the church in Philippi. That command is all. For all who call upon Christ as Lord and Savior, who follow after him, who are trusting in him. That command is for all who believe the gospel. I want to, again, try to make sure that you don't miss that command. Everything that flows past that or after that or comes after that in this section comes under that command. It's a working out, if you will, of that command, really. I want to make sure you, you don't miss this. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy. In the Greek, it's translated worthy in the English, but in the Greek, the definition is appropriately, properly, suitably. So the command is, Christian, your living, your behaving is to be appropriate or proper or suitable of the gospel of Christ. In other words, it's to be lived out in a way that is right or appropriate in light of the gospel of of Christ. It would, it would be like if I said to you, you need to dress suitably for the weather, for the hot weather, let's say. 
What would that mean? If you showed up in a, a jacket, yeah, and a, a hoodie or a hat or something, and, and it was really hot, that would not be suitable dress for the weather that you're in, right? There is suitable dress for that type of weather, an appropriate dress, the right kind of dress. Dress that is, if you will, worthy of that type of environment. Let me, let me try it again. Let me keep pressing. The Greek word translated worthy comes from a, another Greek word. It's derived from this other Greek word, meaning deserving. Deserving. Now, I don't want you to get confused because I think you could get confused here. I think you could. I think you could maybe think that my life Look, my life, it's deserving of the gospel. It's not that. It's that the gospel of Christ is deserving of a particular manner of life. That is what it is that we're talking about when we say, We are to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. It, the gospel, the message of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus is deserving. Of a particular way of life, a conduct. You hear me? You want to know what a response worthy of the gospel of Christ is? It is the response of Paul when he says, for to me to live is Christ. That's a response worthy of the gospel of Christ. And it wasn't just a response, but it was a declaration of a life and of a lifestyle and of a commitment. Beloved, are you striving This is the question I want you to ask yourself as we step into this because this really, these texts, this is verse 12 and 13, really just expands that command, opens it up for us. So I want you to ask yourself now, are you striving for your manner of life to be worthy of the gospel of Christ? Are you striving for your manner of life to be worthy of, of the great, magnificent, most excellent gospel of Christ. I hope, I hope you are. I trust you are. I'm praying that you are. And if you're not, I'm praying that that will change. Under that overarching command, Paul goes on to urge the church at Philippi to be united. I'm I'm bringing you up to speed to where we are right now because it's all one unit. So you understand the context. He urges this church to be united. Remember, there's some bickering and disputing going on in this church. Seeds of division. 
of disunity. So under that overarching command, he urges them to be united, to be of one mind and of one purpose. And we've, we've covered these matters in detail already. He goes on to, he goes on to command them to, that they would pursue their unity through humility. Through humility. Without humility, unity doesn't stand a chance. Each member of the church, humility, each member of the church selflessly making the health and welfare of their church community the center of their focus. Rather than making themselves the center of the focus, they make others, specifically in this context, their brothers and sisters in Christ, there in that local fellowship, the very center of their focus. They make their welfare the center of their focus. So that they might together better lock arms for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul then goes on to exhort them to adopt the humble attitude that was seen from the cradle to the grave in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, though he was clothed in the garments of divine majesty and splendor, sharing God's glory, even so, he, the pre-existent Christ, willingly, voluntarily, for the immeasurable good of sinners and for the great glory of the Godhead, selflessly made himself nothing. He made himself of no reputation. The ESV says he emptied himself. How? By leaving behind the indescribable glories of heaven that he shared with his father and coming into this fallen, broken, sinful world, taking not the form of a king, but the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And as a man, he further humbled himself. Beloved, he humiliated himself by becoming obedient to the utmost limit, even to death. And that, the most shameful of all deaths, the utterly vile death on the cross. And there on the cross, perfectly fulfilled God's amazing plan of redemption and secured eternal salvation for every sinner who would believe in him. Amazing. In verse 12, now, still under the general command to live worthy of the gospel of Christ, and along with and in addition to the other commands we've looked at already in this entire section, from 127 all the way to where we are, Paul, after addressing his readers as his beloved 
or his dear friends, and after commending their obedience when he had previously been with them in person, and urging them to be now even more zealous to obey in light of his absence, Paul then admonishes them to work out or, better yet, continue working out their own salvation with awe and reverence or fear and trembling. Both are good translations of the Greek. So let me say this first. Let me just get this one out of the way because I think it is worth noting that Paul, and please note this, please, Paul does not command the church to work for their salvation. He does not. If he did, right? He does not. If he did, that would contradict everything else we read in the Bible about salvation. But rather, Paul exhorts them to work out. Okay? Work out their salvation. I work for something that's an entirely different thing. I don't have it. I'm working for it, and then it's given to me. This is not the case. They're working out something they already have. And Paul's command to work it out, that aligns perfectly with what we know about salvation, about the salvation that God graciously gives to every sinner who repents and puts their complete trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. So again, this salvation that Paul's Christian readers are called upon to work out or to continue work out, as I said, it's already theirs. It's their salvation. They already possess it. And beloved, just as a reminder, because it's necessary to keep reminding us of these things because there are other voices out there that say something that is not accurate about salvation. They actually either say directly or indirectly that, yeah, you do work for it. No. No, that is not what the scriptures teach. We know that a person can only obtain it, that is salvation, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? The Bible is clear, beloved, that salvation is a gracious gift of God. It is not and cannot be worked for or, or earned by us. But it is to be. And don't miss this. It is to be, that is your salvation, according to the Apostle Paul, according to God's word, which stands over all. It is to be continually worked out. The salvation that you have, by God's grace, as a gift, you couldn't earn it, you couldn't work for it, it is a salvation that is to be worked out. It's a command 
of God through his authorized representative, the Apostle Paul. God is saying, it's, you can take it this way. God is saying to you, believer, and to me, that salvation I gave you, although you did not deserve it, although you could not earn it, ever, and, I, and I'm using, I just thought to myself, I don't think he's even speaking like that. Let me try this. I'm just worked up. This salvation that I gave you, though you could not earn it, though you could not deserve it ever, this gift I gave to you, this redemption, that very redemption I'm commanding of you, my child, you must continue to work it out. And in light of that, I think it's important just to quickly recall, to quickly recall that God's salvation is much more than simply the promise of heaven at the end of this life, like some erroneously believe. Beloved, it's, in other words, for some people, when they speak of salvation or attempt to define it, that would be the end of their definition. It's just where you go after you die. It means you get to go to heaven. You don't have to go to hell. And that is true. Very true. And I praise God that is true. But it is so much more. God's salvation of the sinner, beloved, just let me remind you of a few things. God's salvation of the sinner includes the new birth. Thomas has been talking about that in the Gospel of John. It includes a new heart. It includes the permanent indwelling of and ongoing work of the powerful, transforming, life-changing, Christ-conforming Holy Spirit. It includes, beloved, our salvation, having been set free from the enslavement to sin that we were all born into. We've been set free from sin. So that we would, as new creations in Christ, right now, in this life, live for God. Really live for God. Really live for God. Someone says, perfectly. What would you say? No, not yet. Not yet, not in this life, no. Not perfectly, but as each day and week and year pass, more and more and to a greater degree and in a greater way, living for our creator, for his glory, according to his grand purposes, according to his revealed will, as we ought, as we were originally made to do but could not do at all, as lost 
rebellious, unsaved, unredeemed, unregenerate, foolish, darkened, dead in our trespasses and sins, people. Glory to God for his salvation. But it is a salvation that is to be continually worked out. So back to our text. Paul calls on the Philippians to, as we've just seen, to continue working out their salvation. One Bible commentator puts it this way, it is a command to continue to make their salvation fruitful in the here and now. We're not called to have a fruitless tree, but a very fruitful, tasty tree if you will. One other author says it means making salvation operational. You understand that, I think, can't you? You know, you have, you have a manufacturing plant, you have one that's non-operational, it's producing nothing. Oh, all the things are there that it needs to produce a product, but it's non-operational. You with me? That is not how our salvation is to be. It is to be fully operational. And it doesn't take the weekends off, this plant. It is to be fully operational 24-7. You could say it is a command for Christians. You could say this. It is a command for Christians to continually be about the business of of fleshing out their salvation or living out their salvation. Or what could say that working out your salvation is really about, really about being increasingly conformed in word, thought, and deed to the likeness of Christ. That is what God has saved us for, that we might be conformed to the likeness of Christ. And that looks like something that acts a certain way, it thinks a certain way, it speaks a certain way, the likeness of Christ. Remember, he just told the church, have this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus. Be like Christ. Be more like Christ. Also, beloved, please note something. I'm having you note so many things today. The command is directed to who? I'm asking a question, but I'll accept answers. The command is directed to who? The church, yes. Huh? Believers? Okay. So are you a believer? So the command is directed to you all, but individually as well, the individuals that make up the local church, but it's directed to you, the believer, to you, which means the command makes the believer responsible for working out their own salvation. If you're given a command, then you are responsible. I'm not giving the command. I'm not giving it to someone else. Hey, hey, Bob, work out senior salvation. 
Now the command is given to each and every believer. You personally are responsible for working out your salvation. Which, let me just say, I emphasize that only because there can be, and we'll get, just hold, we're getting to verse 13, for those of you who have, are familiar with the passage. But you cannot miss your responsibility in this matter. Because there are some who say, you know, it's all about just letting go and letting God. And uh, I don't know, somehow through osmosis or me sitting on the couch, uh, maybe if I just get near my Bible, I don't know, you know, maybe if I just, if it's near me, if it's in the bedroom, if it's in the house, I don't know, or if I just kind of, you know, go through the doors of the church, I don't know, it just, it's going to happen. No, no! That is not what it means to work out your salvation. You are personally responsible. Okay? I am personally responsible. One author says, we are called ourselves to shoulder responsibility for seeing that the work gets done. Who's responsible for seeing that the work gets done? Well, first and foremost, it's you. It's you. So don't, don't say God hasn't, God just needs to do more or something. I guess that's where I'm, I'm trying to get, because you're going to see in a moment, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself and I wanted to build up, you know, but God is doing all that is necessary. And so I, Christians get in this weird trap of saying God hasn't done enough or, or maybe I need something else or, no, God has commanded you to do this very thing. So I'm going to guess that he, I'm not going to guess, I'm going to know that he's all wise and every righteous, or every command of his is righteous and perfect. So it wasn't like he didn't know something specific about you that, and so if he knew that, he certainly wouldn't put this responsibility on me. No, uh-uh. He knows all things and he knows you. And yet, to every single one of you, without of exception, he says, you be about the business of working out your salvation. Make it operational 24-7. All right? You with me? Alcina's with me. Okay. I got some more activity over there. Good. I'll put it this way, okay? Right here, right now, in this life, we who are saved are to continue working out the great work of salvation that has taken place in us by the grace of God. Every person saved by God is responsible for laying hold of all the amazing blessings and privileges of their salvation in Christ. And working out those blessings and privileges in their lives. In their words, in their thoughts, and in their deeds, in their actions, in their behaviors, in their conduct. They are to make their salvation fruitful. There is nothing biblical about passive Christianity. It is not okay for a Christian to be okay 
with an inactive Christian life. Or let me further define, a life that does nothing or very little to work out its salvation. There's nothing okay with that. It's actually disobedience to God. We are called to continually root out sin in our lives and by the grace of God to walk more and more in the newness of life that we have in Christ. That's the command. So think, think it through, beloved. Are you striving to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ? Are you? Are you striving? Are you striving? But Paul doesn't just say, beloved, Paul doesn't just say work out your salvation, does he? He doesn't just say that. Look back at the text. He adds these, he adds a phrase. To his dear friends, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Well, beloved, I think that takes it up a notch. I am good with the translation of the NET. I think it it's probably helps us maybe not get confused about what fear and trembling might be, but in the NET, continue working out your salvation with awe and reverence. Awe. You know, that's a feeling of reverential res- respect that's mixed with fear or wonder, amazement. Reverence, deep, deep respect. Deep respect. Bowing respect. The Greek word, as one commentator points out, that's translated fear in the ESV, it can mean a number of things. It can denote alarm or fright or dismay. But that doesn't fit here. And again, it's the idea of being dismayed in the face of danger. For the Christian, God is not danger. It would, be, it would fit perfectly to have fear and trembling in the face of God's judgment as a lost sinner who has not yet repented and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Then that's the kind of fear that would grip and should grip them. Fright, alarm, dismay because of what God will do to them or failing to turn to Christ. But it can also mean fear, reverence, or respect in the presence of fellow human beings or God. And so reverence, reverence is a good word to use here in this case, in this context, when it's speaking of Christians. The Greek word translated trembling was often coupled with fear to picture a person standing with quivering fear or trembling awe trembling awe before someone or something. You get the idea. So we we have this phrase, this fear and trembling. (sighs) Like that, like, whoa. Whoa. And I I don't know what could produce that more than to be in the presence of God, to behold him and his mighty acts and works. It is used, this phrase, on a number of occasions, almost as a stereotyped expression 
in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to the fear of human beings in the presence of God and his mighty acts. Fear and trembling. Reverence and awe. So that's the phrase Paul uses. Christian, continue working out your salvation with this, if you will, godly fear, with a awe and reverence before God. And that totally makes sense that he would add that phrase when we read verse 13. Why must you continue working out your salvation with awe and reverence, Christian? Verse 13, for it is God, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Or as the NET translates it, for the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure. Pleasure is none other than God himself. God works in you. It's, it is also in the present tense. So God is working in you. He continues from the moment of your salvation. He has been working in you. He continues to work in you. He will work until he brings about his intended purpose for you and completes that good work. But right now, he is working in you. And the verb there is different for works, is different than the verb used for us to work out our salvation. It's different. It characteristically describes work which achieves its purpose. God's working is effectual working, as one commentator put it. It will achieve its purpose. He's working in you. So we can conclude from this that the command for Christians to work out their salvation, based on what we just read, must not be fulfilled nonchalantly. Or casually. You know, uh, I'm going to go off on a tangent here, and then if I do, I don't know if I'll get back. So let me, let me try to control myself. It must not be fulfilled nonchalantly or casually, but I, I would say, in light of what we just read, with the utmost seriousness. Why? Because, because it is God himself who is effectively and mightily working in the Christian to achieve his saving purposes in their lives. I, I'm cool with a casual dress to church. I'm cool with that, okay? Not like I'm the... Who cares what I'm really cool with? But I'm just telling you, don't like take that as, oh, well, if he's cool with it, then it's okay. No, I'm cool with it. Um, obviously, because look, you guys are all pretty much casual. And if I wasn't, then you would feel weird and you'd probably dress differently, right? So 
Because, you know, for reasons people make that the issue, this external thing, but there was something, I think, lost, maybe. It's my opinion. Now, I'm speaking not from the scriptures, okay? I'm speaking my opinion to you. Thinking about this, the seriousness, it really, it elevates this command. It's elevated in great seriousness. It's to be done in light of God who's working in you. There's a seriousness to it. So back to, so it's not to be treated lightly or casually. So now back to where I was going. I, I just think maybe something has been lost and I'm not looking to change it. I'm not asking you guys to all dress up in your Sunday best. I'm not doing that at all. But there was for a long time a tone for Sunday morning worship that it was to be treated seriously. We were coming together and it's not like God's here in the building, but corporately together, God's indwelling his people, coming together to stand before him, bow before him, and worship him. And the dress on one level was designed had an attempt to kind of communicate the seriousness of this gathering, okay? So, you know, I don't know how effective that was in doing those kind of things uh, because then people could enter into Monday and then not be serious at all. What God, what Paul is calling the Christian to is a, a real seriousness, not just on Sunday, but on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday and on Thursday and on Friday and on Saturday, not just here, but there and everywhere to giving yourself, really giving yourself intentionally, on purpose, all the time to the working out of your salvation, to the rooting out of sin in your lives, to the walking in this newness of life that you have, Christian, that you have. You don't need to go find it. You have it in Christ. So I just think, you know, sometimes maybe the casualness we let that, the casualness of our clothing, maybe we've allowed that to kind of seep in in places where it doesn't belong. That's where I was trying to go with that long explanation. Totally cool with the clothing, but don't let the casualness seep into your worship, to your service, to your love, to your desire to be like Christ. Don't let that be casual. You live your whole life before the face of God and he is in you and he is working to bring about his purposes and he wants you to get in line. And he's not a tyrant. He's not evil. The getting in line with his work is for our good. My goodness. This is a loving God who works in us a righteous God, an all-wise God who's working in us and he wants you, he's commanding you to get in line with his work by working out your salvation. God Almighty Beloved has undertaken the task to achieve, he has undertaken the task to achieve his saving purposes in the believer. God is working and enabling you to work out the salvation that he has graciously given to you. Why? So that you might honor and glorify him. And will that be bad for you? Huh? Is that gonna be bad for you? 
Is that going to be sad for you? Is that going to hurt you? Would that hurt you? Is there, let me say it this way, anything better than that? See, and you say no, and I say no now. And yet, somewhere along the way, after you walk out of this room, you somehow, in some way, say yes. I know you do, because I do. You, you believe the lie of sin, that sin is better. That something other than God's way is better for you. That God's way will hurt you. That God's way will make you sad. That God's way is not your best. Good thing he's still working in us. Huh? Good thing. Good thing he's committed to this work. He is continually working in us, and he says this. It's a weird phrase, maybe, both to will and to work. Both to will and to work. It's not that weird, especially when you see it in a different translation. He is continually working in us, and it says here in the NET, for the one bringing forth in you both the desire, that's the will, and the effort, that's the work, for the sake of his good pleasure is God. God, by his indwelling spirit, is effectively working to supply both the determination to obey his own purpose and the power to carry it out. Okay, so just stop with the, I don't have what I need to live the Christian life. That's a lie. That is a lie. Maybe I'm waiting for something. Maybe I'll, I just need to keep praying well, you do need to keep praying along with the rest of us, for sure. That's relationship with our Father. That's confession of sin. That's thanksgiving. That's prayer for continued help and all of that, of course. But people get this idea like they don't, like what are you, are you they're waiting for something. No, no. God, you know what you need to do? You need to stop being rebellious. That really is it. You need to stop loving lesser things and love the greatest thing. Because you have what you need. God is at work in you. Listen to this. I saved this one. It's really good. I thought, I think it is. So I wanted to share it with you. I hope you will appreciate it too. Concerning that the fact that he is bringing forth in us both the desire and the effort to achieve his good purposes and to please him, which is good, which is good. Is it good to please God? It is. It is. It's good. It's good for us. Here it is. Here's the quote. Not only does God empower their doing, empower there. Who's there? Who's the there there? Who is it? Christians, Christians. So that would include us. So your doing, but also the willing that lies behind the doing. This is fully in keeping with Paul's understanding of Christian ethics, which has not to do with obedience to a set of rules that regulate conduct, but first of all, with a mind that is transformed by the Spirit. Such a mind is conformed not to this age, but to the character of God, so that behavior is a reflection of God's will what is good and pleasing and perfect to him, his will. 
The doing of salvation for Paul, therefore, lies in the willing, which means the radical transformation of life by the Spirit. The believer is not one who has been begrudgingly caught by God, as it were, so that obedience is basically out of fear and trembling over what might happen if one were to do otherwise. Rather, being Christ means to be converted in the true sense of that word, to have one's life invaded by God's Holy Spirit so that not simply new behavior is now affected, but a new desire toward God that prompts such behavior in the first place. Now, beloved, we don't have time to talk about the, all the means that God uses is, uh, in his work in us and, and to bring that into play in our lives. But certainly the word, right? The spirit takes the spirit's word, this, 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 this right here, the church, the fellowship of the believers, the gift of teachers in the church. He takes all of those things God is using to accomplish his work. He's doing a work in you to change you, to change your desires, to transform you. But he, he does that through his word that he gave to us. He does it through discipline, right? He disciplines his children who he loves. He does it through circumstances and challenges. He's doing all of that to bring you to the place so that you will desire him and desire his will for your life and act it out. What gets in the way of that? Sin, unconfessed sin, rebellion, foolishness, stupidity. The concluding phrase of 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Another translation of that, different, different trans, Bible translation, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Please, please, don't tell me, don't, better yet, it's not to me you answer. Don't tell God, don't tell your own heart that you don't have what you need to live for Christ, to pursue Christ, to walk in holiness, to repent of your sin. You have it. He is working in you, but he is giving you the desire and the power, but we are still foolish, often, and we suppress. We talk about the unbeliever suppressing the revelation of God, and denying the gospel and Jesus Christ? Well, guess what, Christian? Guess what we suppress? We suppress our God who dwells in us. We suppress his revelation. We suppress his voice. He gives us a desire. We turn away from that desire like morons. We 
We treat his work lightly, nonchalantly. We have a casual approach to our spiritual maturity. I'll test it. I'll test it. You can test it. Are you farther along in being conformed to the image of Christ than you were a year ago? Have you asked yourself that question? Why not, if you haven't? Are you okay with not asking yourself that question? Are you okay with a no? You shouldn't be. Are you farther along in in your being conformed to the image of Christ than you were a month ago? No? You haven't asked yourself that question? Why not? You should be asking yourself that question. You should be discontent. A holy discontent with a no. Or not really. Or I didn't really think about it. Why not? That is the very thing God has for you in giving you his salvation. He is working out in you that you might work out this great, powerful, wonderful work of grace that he is working out in you and and has achieved through the death, (sighs) through the humiliating death of his beloved son. He He didn't go there just so you could have the hope of when this world is over, You don't have to go to hell. It includes that, beloved. He went there to break the power of sin in your life that you might be conformed into the image of him. That was his father's desire, that we would all be made to look like him. But sin had to be dealt with, and that's why it was. And now he gives you his spirit. He indwells in you and through his spirit, he is working in you powerfully to change your desires and to give you the energy and the power that you need to work out that thing that his son had to die on a cross to achieve. Would you treat it lightly? And all of this he does All of this he does. All of this work, the saving work that he does in you is so that your life might be pleasing to him. One writer says, God energizes your will and your activity in order that you may fulfill his good pleasure. And as I've said, I'm gonna keep saying it. If it was was an evil king, an evil ruler, And he said, I'm gonna do things so that you will fulfill my good pleasure. That would be no good pleasure at all. That would be a terrifying thing, and a frightening thing, a thing even that I could see we'd rebel against. But that's not the case here. His good pleasure is our good. (laughs) Is it not? And so we need to keep hearing that and keep saying that and keep telling each other that and keep telling our dumb hearts. They're wandering all over the place. We need to keep telling them that, that, that heart, that truth. 
Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you uh, for you. We thank you for you. We thank you for you. We thank you for the salvation that you've graciously given us and are working out in us and have called us to work out. And Father, we thank you for your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we celebrate now together as the body of Christ. We say thank you. Amen.